Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, my name's Kay. And I'm John. And thanks for listening to our first podcast. First, we want to say, please take into account this is our first attempt at anything like this. So forgive any audio problems. We live in an apartment. Our upstairs neighbor is vacuuming right now, and we have some laundry going. She's an asshole. (laughs) Basically, yes. Giant asshole. Uh, Any pronunciation problems? We are dealing with a case where there's a lot of German, so that's going to be an issue. Those Germans. Or just any screw-ups in general. So I hope you enjoy the show. If you do, please be sure to give us some great iTunes reviews. Um, because this is our first episode, just giving you some background, I love, love listening to true crime podcasts. I love Generation Y, True Crime Garage, Insight, Small Town Murder is amazing, and of course our favorite, Last Podcast on the Left. I love those guys. Just amazing. And we thought that we have some pretty interesting discussions about the cases we hear And I thought, you know what, let's just give this a try, too, because really everyone in our lives just thinks we're a little strange. Yeah, let's be honest. I mean, it's not, uh, (laughs) you know, something you want to talk about every day, but for us it is. Okay, so the first case that we're going to be discussing is the murders at Hinterkaifeck Farm in Germany that took place in 1922. We're going to have a little bit of a different approach than usual. What happens is most people kind of get right into the crime because it is so crazy interesting. But what I think is even more interesting is all the background and the stuff that happened before the murders even took place. So we're going to get kind of in-depth into Germany at the time, family background, and then we're going to slowly try to create what the narrative could have been with the murders. Absolutely. Um. So although I'm sure most of you know about the basics, the when and where the murders took place, uh, it also seems that it's these minute details that tend to help solve the crime. Not saying we're going to do that, definitely not. But let's get down to what those details are. So the case takes place in the beginning of the 20th century in what's present-day Bavaria, Bavaria, Germany, which is about an hour's drive from Munich. So it's about an hour's drive north of Munich. The actual murders are going to take place in late March of 1922, but the details we're going to be discussing today will encompass a lot of time prior to the murders taking place. So this all involves the Gruber family. Super German last name. The Gruber family lives on a farm behind a province that's known as Kaifeck. The German word for behind is hinter, thus we get the name Hinter Kaifeck. Jeez, these Germans, man, with their names. I know. Well, they, like, combine words, and then you just get mile-long words. To make things very, very complicated? Yes, I got very, you. Very. All right, great. <laughs> um, just an aside, I will tell you right now that I am a high school history teacher, so my nerd is going to come out a little bit. Big nerd. And I'm going to tell you the historical background of this time. I won't get super into it. I don't want to put anyone to sleep. Now, this is... 1922 Germany Germany's in what we know as complete crisis mode after World War One and this is mostly because of the blame placed on the country in the war guilt clause 
and the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles is going to end World War I. And the country's dealing with a, a big loss of colonies or geographic regions that were economically important to Germany. Basically, Germany was just given the forest land. Everything else that they used for their shipping, for their factories, all of those economic regions and colonies were stripped from them. So now this causes a huge problem because Germany owes all this money to the Allies. They can't pay it because all their production means were taken away or all their means of making money. Right, that must suck. <laughs> yeah, so the people of Germany were pissed. And this means that everything comes to a halt in Germany. There's massive job loss, which, which is made even worse by hyperinflation. So also during World War I, German citizens were dealing with famine and destruction. They have to rebuild after the bombing that took place from the Allies and the invasion of the Russians, who, just as bad as the Germans, are going to completely destroy most areas of Germany, and they're going to have to rebuild. Okay, so German citizens at this time are furious, and they're going to form a whole bunch of radical groups, both left and right wing, and many of those groups are being led by former German soldiers. Sound familiar? Someone's coming up through the ranks. Oh, man. The, it's, Hitler. It's the Austrian. So just to conclude, during the times of these murders, the people of Germany had their lives uprooted and no sense of normalcy. They were frustrated, poor, and had badly bruised egos, which was an issue because prior to World War I, Germany had basically the strongest army in the world, and now they've been reduced to nothing. So the people in Germany are very frustrated, they're desperate, and this is really going to come into play when we talk about the theories of who could have committed these murders, and it really helps me back up my favorite theory. So we'll get there, though. So that's just a background on the historical aspect of what's going on in Germany during that time. But now let's get into the Gruber family. Uh, an important thing to know about the Gruber family is that they were very wealthy, and that's going to lead a lot of people to not like them especially because the the patriarch of that family is also going to be a complete jerk by all accounts andreas gruber who is 65 years old then katia gruber who's on now her name has been pronounced 12 million different ways katia seems like the easiest thing to go with that's what we're gonna do might get in trouble for it later but i'll take my chances so Katia Gruber is Andreas's wife, and she's 73 years old, so she's a little bit older than Andreas. Rocking the cradle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> she didn't get a good deal. Victoria Gabriel is the daughter of Andreas and Katia Gruber, and she's 35 years old. She's going to have two children, Katia, who's named after her grandmother, I'm assuming, She's seven years old. Although her age has been kind of up for debate a little bit, some people are going to date her as old as nine years old after the autopsy takes place. But for all accounts, we're going to say she's seven. Joseph Gruber is the son of Victoria, and he is two years old. Um, then there's the maid, Maria Baumgartner, who's 45. She's the maid of the family, and in the worst stroke of luck in the history of no luck, the day slash night of the murder is going to be her first day on the job. Oh, man. What <laughs> luck, huh? Um, the Gruber family was well-known in small community that surrounded their farm. 
but not in a positive way. The family is said to have lived a very isolated life on their farm. Andreas is known to have been extremely abusive to his family, particularly his wife and daughter. In most accounts of interviews held by police after the crime and years later, it is stated that Andreas keeps his family close and he is usually the only one who goes into town to get needed supplies um, or parts for farming equipment. The only time the other members of the family really leave is to go to church or young Cassie is going to school. There's also rumors of the Grubers having children in addition to Victoria, but they met hor a horrible fate either at the hands of Andreas himself or to disease. But I couldn't find this anywhere. I couldn't find records of there being other Gruber children. So let's just put that aside for now. I think what people are trying to just say is how horrible Andreas was as a father. Wasn't a good human being at all. No. <laughs> and we'll get into more of that. Before we get into the murder, I think it's important to go deeper into the bizarre dynamics, characters involved. And most of these details of craziness are going to lie within the life of Victoria Gruber Gabriel. Although there's a lot of rumors surrounding the Gruber family, there's something that is extremely well known about the Gruber family. It is that Andreas Gruber had, now I'm going to throw up a little bit, a sexual obsession with his daughter, Victoria. Oh, yeah. Come on. Now, Victoria, at the age of 35, lived at home with her parents due to the fact that her husband, Carl Gabriel, died in the trenches of World War I. However, his body was never returned to Victoria and his family, but it was buried in a mass grave on a battlefield. But the abuse did not begin after Victoria became a widow. It had been occurring since she was 16 years old. So I have some quotes here that are just going to confirm, because a lot of times you hear this crime discussed, people are going to say, oh, they had a supposed sexual relationship. But through certain documents, we found out that no, it's definitely confirmed that the two had a sexual relationship. Also, a lot of people within the town also kind of confirmed it as well. I mean, they had, everyone had their suspicions. Right. And if you're just in a town and someone just casually knows that a father is abusing a daughter, it's definitely taking place. Oh, yeah. So, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, who we will get into, but for right now, let's just talk about his quotes that he's saying here. He is the neighbor, future lover of Victoria, and all-around weirdo, is going to reveal in his interview with police that Victoria confided to Schlittenbauer's late wife, also named Victoria. Side note here, everyone in the story has the same exact name. And it's going to be really annoying. <laughs> so Schlittenbauer is married to someone named Victoria. Victoria is going to say to Schlittenbauer's late wife, Victoria, that her father had been having sex with her since her 16th birthday. He's going to tell police directly, quotation marks, it was well known that old Gruber with his daughter was with his daughter in sexual intercourse. But the old Gruber did not tell her this so he didn't tell his wife that himself but victoria told her who was about 16 years old at the time that she can't keep up with her father because he always wants to have sex oh god oh, i mean what's up with this disgusting. guy and his daughter oh my god well, okay now all of the quotes that we're going to be reading today are going to sound weird but that's because they're translated from german into english 
I was almost going to say American, (laughs) (laughs) Um, into English. So that's why it kind of sounds a little weird. So, of course, that's just hearsay. It's not 100% reliable. So basically what Schlittenbauer is saying is that Victoria told Victoria and then Victoria told him. That's really not something we can rely on. One thing we can rely on is a conviction. According to a judgment made by the Regional Court of Newburgh Danau, Andreas Gruber and Victoria Gabriel were convicted of incest on May 28, 1915. Now, it's not clear where this charge is going to originate from, but after this takes place, the maid that the family had gets fired. So I'm assuming that, and there is accounts of them saying that the maid had walked in on them too. So it's probably the maid that's going to bring those charges after she was fired. The charge is that they were involved in an incestuous relationship between the time of 1907 to the summer of 1910. And Victoria is charged with one month's imprisonment and Andreas to a year of working in the breeding house, which when I tried to put into Google Translate as much as I could, it really came out as like years of service. So I'm assuming that's kind of like community service. Yeah, I think it's safe to say it's community service. I do like that the younger victim has to actually be imprisoned for a month. So way to go, Germany. (laughs) Way to drop the ball. We also get an interesting insight into the family through a classmate of Katia Gabriel. So this is going to be the daughter of Victoria. Now, the classmate's name is Sophie Fuchs. And Fuchs gives an interview to police in 1922. She's going to give a few interviews. She loves telling these stories. She stated that she witnessed Victoria approach her mother and was complaining about the treatment that her father was giving her. And Fuchs remembers that Katia Gruber responds to her daughter, well, what do you expect? You see what he does to me. So what I'm assuming she's kind of talking about is the abuse that's taking place because everyone in town knows how abusive he is to his wife. So maybe, now I'm just speculating here, but maybe that he kind of was grooming his daughter and making her feel like he cared about her. But now he was kind of turning on her and treating her the same way he was treating his wife. Like, he's starting to become abusive. Right. That's what that sounds like to me. Uh, to me, uh, to me, it sounds like the same thing, to be honest. I mean, you know. It's the way it usually, unfortunately, yeah. works. And Fuchs is also, now this is going to kind of back it up. Fuchs recalls an incident in school where Katsy is falling asleep. And when she's asked by a teacher what's wrong, Katsy is going to confess that the family was up all night. Um, looking for her grandmother who ran away into the woods after a fierce family fight claiming she was going to commit suicide they i know they eventually found her sitting on a tree stump near the river so this could possibly be because she was so distraught over the relationship between her husband and daughter I mean, it also could be that she was being abused and she just kind of wanted out, maybe. Right. Like, she doesn't have a choice. I don't think this is a situation where a mom just didn't step up. I think the whole family's very abused. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think what adds to it also is that Andreas keeps them extremely isolated. So they really don't have an out during this time. Right. So Victoria did try to begin a relationship with another man after the death of her husband, And that's her neighbor, Lorenz Schlittenbauer. I believe that she probably turned to this guy because she seems to have limited access to the outside world 
except for the fact that she sings for a choir in her church. Her father liked to keep her under his thumb, and the only other male contact she seemed to have was with Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Um, it had been stated that Victoria approached Lorenz to begin a relationship with him, but he refused her because he was married at the time to another woman, Victoria. <laughs> That's an easy transition, Victoria to Victoria. Right, yeah. <laughs> However, Schlittenbauer's wife died in 1918. Very convenient. And that is when the sexual relationship between Victoria, Gabriel, and Lorenz Schlittenbauer is going to begin. Possibly. I mean, there's nothing to say they didn't start this relationship prior to the death of the wife. Schlittenbauer confesses to a friend, one of the men that's actually going to accompany him to look for the Grubers when no one's heard from them for a few days, that him and Victoria had sex a total of five times. So no matter how many times they really did get together, the two wanted to get married. However, Andreas Gruber forbid this from happening. He threatened Victoria and said he would leave the farm if she got married. I really think that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, really. Just, just let leave. dad leave. Yeah. Yeah, please. And that she did not need a husband, that he was there for that. He was there for the almighty vagina. For that John. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. This was <laughs> This was from this was overheard from a comment. you kinda now what? I didn't expect you to say vagina. I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) This was from an overheard conversation that the two had at the barn one day. So someone overheard this conversation. Victoria's obviously asking to go get married, start her life, and dad's saying no way. Well, Victoria gets pregnant during this time and gives birth to her son, Josef, in September of 1919. She names Schlittenbauer as the father to the community but Yosef's birth certificate states that the child is actually illegitimate. So there is no father listed on the birth certificate. Hmm. Because the couple is not married, the Grubers petitioned the court for Schlittenbauer to pay child support. Schlittenbauer, who is in another relationship at the time and is worse off financially than the Grubers, who were all accounts very, very wealthy for the time period. So that doesn't mean they were super rich, but we're talking about a time where people in Germany couldn't eat. So right. they could support themselves. So what was fueling his refusal to pay the child support more than anything, more than the money, is the fact that he knew that Victoria had been sleeping with her father while they were also having a relationship. Um, really was general knowledge within the community and it was embarrassing and he kind of didn't want to be taken for a fool. Everyone in town knows that Andreas Gruber is probably the father and now he's having to pay what they call maintenance. Right, which is a crazy love triangle. Right. You know, I mean, it's just it's crazy. so bizarre. Yeah. Um, he claims more specifically that Victoria confessed to him during the month that Yosef was born that she, in fact, was still having a sexual relationship with her father. Schlittenbauer, knowing the past of the family, is going to let the local authorities know what happened. Andreas Gruber is furious about this. All these rumors that he's the father of Josef, he says it's all because of Schlittenbauer, not because he's just a super creep and everyone in the town already knows what's (laughs) going on. But through legal documents, Lorenz is going to officially deny paternity of Josef on October 9th, 1919. And Josef is born... The first week of September 1919, so this is a month after the child's born. 
Now, because the two charges of incest Schlittenbauer has made against the Grubers, as well as the past convictions, the police are going to immediately take Andreas Gruber into custody. So Gruber is now in custody because of his incestuous relationship. And Schlittenbauer has charged him now twice of this. After this, Victoria is going to appeal to Schlittenbauer and ask him to withdraw the charges of incest. To sweeten the deal, she offers to pay him 2,000 gold marks. She also is going to ask him to claim that Joseph is his own and that if he has to pay any maintenance, that she would reimburse him. And through documents, bank documents, it's been said that later on, Victoria is going to give Schlittenbauer another 3,000 gold marks, which is during the time, because we're talking about hyperinflation, it's not as much as it would have been prior to the time of hyperinflation, but it was still more money than from both accounts. So like in total, she gave him 5,000 gold marks. That's a lot. He wouldn't have made that in a year with his farming. Yeah, it's amazing. So he it's got a, a good lot. deal there. Yeah. yeah. In official documentation, the amount of 1,800 marks is agreed upon as yearly maintenance for Yosef. It is after this that Schlittenbauer goes back to his original claim that Yosef is not his son. I'm really thinking maybe Victoria said she's not going to reimburse him for the 1,800 because she already gave him 5,000. Or, you know, or it's possible that, you know, he got what he wanted out of the deal and was just like, you know what, fuck it. Yeah, he probably is just really pissed off that now all of a sudden he has to pay this money. She's saying, I gave you 5000 Isn't that enough? I mean, that does really cover a few years, but I'm sure he wants the 1800 again. Oh, yeah. Um, in the year of 1920, however, Andreas and Victoria are freed of all charges of an incestuous relationship. And that's just because the police state that Schlittenbauer goes back and forth so many times. So he's well, it's like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many times are you going to do that? Yeah, go back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? To speak further on Schlittenbauer, in an interview with police in 1931, get this. He's going to ask to be reimbursed for the maintenance he paid on Yosef because the boy died. Wow, that's pretty scummy. (laughs) Yeah, pretty scumbag (laughs) move. (laughs) That's Um, crazy. Yeah, so he did pay two years of maintenance. So in total, I think that'd be 3,600 marks. Just a big ass move. He just wants money. I think that (laughs) just shows about his character, too. So the final outcome is that Schlittenbauer is considered the father and he has to pay maintenance and legally Andreas Gruber is listed as the guardian of Yosef. So Schlittenbauer has to pay money, but he really has no say in the raising of the child. Right. So I'm sure that's going to cause a little bit of tension between the two men. Also, it's important to note when I say that they're neighbors, they're the only two farms within miles. So, like, the two of them really have to have a lot of discussions all the time, but they're feuding big time. And we're going to see this later on in the case where a lot of our facts are going to come from Schlittenbauer, but that's just because they really have to rely on each other because there's no one around for miles. But that also makes it a little bit more interesting. Like, these two men hated each other, but then needed each other. Well, yeah. I mean, one hand washes the other. They're in, like, these desolate areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the only two people within miles. So, I mean, I guess if you have to, you have to, right? I mean. Right. All right. So, we covered the paternity of Yosef. Now, let's move on to Katia Gabriel. Now, she's given the last name Gabriel because presumably the father is Carl Gabriel, who died in World War One. However, 
Victoria and Carl Gabriel married in March of 1914. The couple, by all accounts, never had a whirlwind romance. Carl had stated to many people that the main reason he married Victoria was to inherit the Hinterkaifeck farm. In fact, before he was sent to the Western Front in France, he did not stay with his wife. He went back to his childhood home to spend time with his family. Carl Gabriel was reported to have been killed in action on December 12, 1914. If Katia Gabriel was born in September of 1915 and he had spent months with his family prior to him leaving for France, it doesn't really make sense that Carl Gabriel is the father of Katia. So this kind of leads, leaves paternity open for Victoria as well. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay, now that we've tried to untangle the complicated, crazy web that is the Gruber family, let's get into the strange occurrences that were taking place at the farm before the murders took place. So what people find most interesting about this case is all of the bizarre things that happened prior to the murders happening. Okay, so the first bizarre event that's going to take place before the murders is going to be with the previous maid, also named... Maria. Maria, Victoria. I know. Jeez. Um, Six months prior to the murder, the maid is going to quit her job and leave immediately. She claims that she could not spend one more night in the house. She claimed that she heard strange noises, disembodied voices throughout the house. She also claimed that she constantly heard footsteps coming from the attic right above her room. Side note, it's pretty interesting because the maid who does die in the house she's found in her room as well so people that support a supernatural thing happening are going to say that it's weird that the occurrence was the stepping was really always coming from above the maid's chambers Hmm. the grubers dismissed her behavior and thought that she was just a crazy person especially because she's going to leave a good job a good paying job right now is really hard to come by in Germany. And the fact that this woman's just going to pick up and leave is very bizarre. So that's something to think of as well. She had to have really been hearing these things or really to have been crazy to just leave a job when everyone in Germany was basically unemployed during this time. Oh, yeah. Especially if she had some sort of family and needed to support her herself, her family. Right. The next unsettling event that's going to take place is the footsteps in the snow. Two weeks prior to the murder, Andreas was surveying the land after a snowstorm, and he saw steps leading from the forest line back to the house. Although he searched the entire property, he could not find steps leading back away from the property. After the footsteps were seen, it was said that members of the family, Both Andreas and Victoria saw a figure standing at the forest line just staring at the house. Creepy. Super creepy. Super creepy. Oh, yeah. So footsteps going from the woods to the house, but not leading back to the woods. So that's going to basically make you assume that the person who walked from the woods to the house is still somewhere on the property. Property. Exactly. And they did see a man standing at the forest line, which is very bizarre because... Where the farm is, it's miles and miles away from the town. Like, what would make anybody go all the way out there just to stalk a farm? And Andreas and Victoria both reported this to Schlittenbauer. So that makes us know that 
they didn't think it was Schlittenbauer standing at the forest line, and he's the only man within the area that could have been doing that. Right. On the night of March 28th, 1922, now just know, side note, the murders are supposed to have taken place during the day slash night of March 31st. So we are getting closer and closer to the date of the murder. The night of March 28th, 1922, Andreas Gruber stated that he heard footsteps coming from the attic. He stated that he checked the attic and found nothing there. The following morning, he found a newspaper on his doorstep from Munich. He questioned the mail carrier about this, but he didn't know where the paper came from. This is, it doesn't sound that bizarre to us because, you know, we're used to finding mail everywhere, but you have to order a paper from Munich to come and it would take a while to get there and the way the paper was dated, it was very questionable. There was no way he could have ordered it or Schlittenbauer could have ordered it because of the date on the paper. So it was weird that the newspaper was on his doorstep and the mailman said he has no idea how it got there. I'm getting closer. On the day of March 30th, Gruber noticed that the keys from his house were missing. He searched the entire property and noticed that there were scratches on the lock for his tool shed. Now, it's in his tool shed that the murder weapon, the mattock, is placed. The accounts of the footsteps, the man in the tree line, the missing keys are all confirmed by Lorenz Schlittenbauer and also by Joseph Mayer. So... Gruber's going to ask Schlittenbauer about all these things because he wants to know, is this possibly you? Did you see anything? And that's going to, it's going to be hard too because the men have extreme tension during this time. Right. So, I mean, maybe the tension may have dissipated because the last documented um, occurrence of them fighting is 1919. Right. So, you know, some time has passed. So some time has passed. Oh, 1920. I'm sorry. So, some time has passed. So, maybe the two men, it's calmed down. They know they need to support each other because they're out on their own. But when Andreas goes into town, he's also going to relay all these accounts to somebody named Joseph Mayer. Um, and he ends up being the, he's the father-in-law of one of the men who goes with Schlittenbauer to discover the bodies. So, this is someone who the family is familiar with that he's going to be asking. Another event that occurred the day before the murder is somewhat unsettling, okay? And this guy, he's known as the unknown man in the cemetery, which is beyond creepy itself. (laughs) On Thursday, March 30th, Victoria was practicing at her choir for the church, and after practice, she was waiting in the cemetery for her fellow singers to say their goodbyes so a few of the women could begin their walks home. It is then that witnesses say that she was approached by an unknown man, in a cemetery at night. Creepy. Yeah. Never wait to approach a lady. Oh, no. <laughs> the, men's, uh, the man says to her, now this is translated from German, so maybe it sounded like a good line, but translate it into English, it's a no-go. Let these geese run, I will accompany you. Wow. Um, that's definitely <laughs> no not game. a pickup line that I would, I just wouldn't use that pickup line. No, no. no. I think, well, obviously what he's saying is let everybody leave. I'll come, but I'll walk you home. Victoria's going to decline his offer, and he seems to be extremely agitated at this. And he gives her a really hard time until other women from the choir are going to walk over, and then they start their walk home. I mean, they obviously can only accompany each other half the way to their homes because then they have to split and go to each other's respective, respective properties. Now, this isn't creepy, but it is bizarre. 
Victoria is going to empty her bank account 17 days before the murder. And she does donate 700 marks of that to the church. And some of the money is going to be found in her bedchambers. Okay. So she did take a lot of money out of her bank account. Whether she was planning on paying Schlittenbauer, maybe planning on leaving, maybe planning on making a big purchase, maybe moving out of her house from her parents. We don't know. But it is kind of something that makes people wonder a little bit. It said the day and night after the keys go missing um, that Loren Schlittenbauer is actually going to hear footsteps in the attic. And he goes up and checks, but he doesn't find anything. So now we don't know the, the state of the attic at the time, if it was cluttered, if it was decluttered, but he says that he doesn't find anything in the attic. It's said that the day and night of the murders is going to take place on March 31st. We don't know the exact narrative of what takes place, so I think the best thing to do is to stick to the facts. So first let's go through the day of discovery, and then we'll go through the theories. Sounds good to me. Okay. On the day of April 4th, 1922, a group of men decide to go check on the Gruber family because they have not heard from them in a few days. Usually the family was reclusive, but this was, ex- this was extreme. Katia Gabriel had not been to school in days, and the family did not attend church services. The mail carrier noticed that the mail had been piling up. So an initial group of three men are going to go check on the farm. However, of learning of the small search party, other people are going to later follow them within the hour. So a lot of people are headed towards the Gruber farm. The three men that are going to go check on the Gruber farm initially are Lorenz Schlittenbauer, Jacob Sigel, and Michael Pohl. Let's go through the testimony of these three men and how they find the bodies. This is going to be from a police interview from 1922 after the bodies are found. So this is all initial interviews. Jacob Sigel and Michael Pohl are going to state that they and Lorenz Schlittenbauer are going to search the Gruber farm at 5 p.m. on April 4, 1922, at the request of Schlittenbauer, because he had not heard from Victoria in days. Obviously, the two were still talking. Right. Upon arrival to the farm, they tried to enter the living quarters, but every door and window in the house was locked, as were most of the gate doors. So, Pohl reports that there was an eerie silence that existed throughout the property. And I guess he's referring to the animals, people. There was no smoke coming out of the chimney. So he said it was just an eerie feeling that he got on the property. The men heard noises coming from the barn on the property. So together they pry open the door to the barn and a loose cow is going to run out. It was then that Schlittenbauer lights a candle so they can see better. Schlittenbauer lifted something up, and Pohl at first thought that it was a board, but it ended up being a human leg, the leg of... Oh, man, I'd be out of there so fast. (laughs) The leg of Andreas Gruber. And when the candle was brought in upward, the three men are going to see that they're actually looking at a pile of human bodies. Oh, I would definitely be out of there. Yeah, they try to leave as quickly as possible, these two men. I don't blame them. One bit. Andreas Gruber... His wife, Cassia, and his daughter, Victoria, were stacked one on top of the other and covered loosely with hay. 
There's blood all over the bodies. The two men then report that Schlittenbauer seemed very unaffected by the sight of these bodies. And he began moving them, basically on stacking them, placing them on the floor of the barn. And when the two men told him to stop moving the bodies, that he was disturbing the crime scene, and this is going to, without a doubt, make him look like the guiltiest person in town, he says that he's not going to stop because he's looking for his son and that he might be in the pile of bodies. I mean, that makes sense. It makes sense. But, I mean, I wouldn't be touching shit because I wouldn't want to have my fingerprints or evidence. I don't want to tamper with evidence. So I just wouldn't even touch shit. Right, but then I think it also could be something that proves that he's kind of innocent, the fact that he's just so eager to find his son and he's so concerned. I mean, we can never say, because people tend to say a lot about Schlittenbauer. He came into the crime scene and he was unaffected, but everyone gets affected differently when they see these kind of things. So I think it's hard to judge him completely on his reaction. I mean, we're talking about a farmer who probably has to slaughter animals endure weather yeah just I mean, hard labor i mean i don't know i don't think him being unaffected by the scene in quotations is something that proves that he's guilty um i think he wants to find his son i mean he could go two ways or the other he's trying to mess up the crime scene so they can't find any evidence or what he's doing is he's just really looking for his son i mean if the whole family's there he's gonna assume yosef is there i agree It's when Schlittenbauer is unstacking the bodies, the men find the body of young Katzia laying against the wall next to the stable door. Lorenz Schlittenbauer is then at this time going to go through the stables into the living quarters because they were connected. So now that they're in the barn, there is a door that can take them into the living quarters. Okay, sort of like a mudroom. Yeah. Okay. And that's how they get inside the house, and that's on the east side of the house. Gotcha. Pohl states here, We went then into the house and bedrooms. We found the two-year-old boy slaughtered in the baby carriage. Upon further search of the house, the body of an unknown woman was found in the bedchambers. Now this makes sense because this is Maria Baumgartner's first day on the job, so these men are unfamiliar with her. So that's why they say an unknown woman. Uh, The men did not know who she was. And they are going to request to leave the site as quickly as possible because they want it to get the authorities there. Right. Um, Lorenz Schlittenbauer is going to insist that he stays. He starts feeding the animals and refuse to leave. Pole and Sigal left to inform authorities right away. Once the other two men left, four other men are going to arrive at the scene. After a while, others are going to arrive. Schlittenbauer, basically it's said that the whole town basically ends up at the Gruber's farm. Right. Schlittenbauer is going to show all the new arrivals, the bodies in the barn and in the house. The number of people that arrive at the crime scene is unknown. We know the number is at least seven, but most accounts say that the majority of the town ended up being there. And, um... In 1922, 1931, and 1952, those at the scene are going to admit to walking through the barn, walking through the house, to moving bodies, and disgusting. 
And even taking food from the cabinets and eating it. I mean, so they're completely destroying a crime scene. Completely. I mean, there, there was no way you could get an accurate, uh, you know, kind of depiction of what was happening. Everything was being destroyed. No, everything is being destroyed. Yeah. And we're going to get a little bit into that when we talk about the different theories and how things are really hard to really be proven because we don't have sufficient evidence. But on top of the crime scene being demolished, we're not going to have a really good reaction from the police. So the Munich criminal police aren't going to arrive at the scene until 5.30 the next day, April 5th, 1922. Now this is because they're going to get lost on the way there. They were supposed to be there that morning, but they end up being there that night. Once they arrive at the scene, the police were met by Lorenz Schlittenbauer at the Hinterkaifeck Estates. It is at this time that he's going to give police a mattock, the presumed murder weapon that he found in the barn at the feeding trough. Mattock is kind of like a pickaxe. It has a long handle, and there's an axe blade on one side and then a cutter on the other side. That's what a mattock looks like. Okay. But... It's going to be proven that the weapon that Lorenz gives them isn't the murder weapon. It is a Matic, but that's not the one that's used. So it's just basically giving them an example. Oh, hey, this is what I think was well, used. Well, uh, he thinks it's the murder weapon. That's what he tells them it is. Okay. But there was no blood found on the weapon. The police only visit the crime scene three times in 1922. First was at 5.30, but because the police had gotten lost along the way, they deemed it was too dark to look through the scene. The next day, they were there from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. The district court of the area is later going to request another investigation of the scene with a concentration in the attic, and they were requested to search especially for a rusty pocket knife. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Nothing was found in the third investigation. Also, it is important to add that when the bodies were removed, they were, done, they were not done so in body bags, which they did have at the time. They were carried out on an unhinged door in the open air. So that's also going to, like, if anything was on the body, it could have blown away. Things could have blown onto the body. So they really weren't taking care of the crime scene. They weren't trying to um, preserve it, preserve any type of evidence. Unfortunately, after this, the scene would never be investigated again because the people of the town are going to burn the estate down in 1923. They stated they could not stand to look at the sight of such evil. Also, they were never really fans of Andreas to begin with, and no one moved into the property. So, the farm had been abandoned since the crimes took place. But in the burning down of the farm, the murder weapon was found underneath the house. The weapon, the mattock, was constructed by Andreas Gruber himself. The weapon was identified by George Siegel, who worked for the family as a farmhand for a short period of time. And this means that the killer tried to conceal the weapon. They know it was the murder weapon because there was blood found on the mattock. So he tried to put the weapon underneath the Like basically like the crawl space of the house. Gotcha. But this also means that the police really obviously didn't do a good thorough search of the estate because it really could have easily been found. When analyzing police interaction with witnesses, it's so obvious that the police were superficially interrogating relatives' witnesses at the time of the crime. Questioning of witnesses and family members only added up to a few pages. 
So for example, the person that we know the least about, Maria Baumgartner, who the police probably should have been trying to find out more about, her sister was questioned and the extent of the questioning only lasted six type lines. The only thing um, she was asked was when she was hired and if she was happy to find a job. So they're really not getting into anything specifically. So we have a completely contaminated crime scene, limited collected evidence, limited initial interviews, and the only thing that can produce a narrative as to what happened is the bodies. Now we're going to get into the autopsy report. This is how the bodies are found. The following information is going to be graphic and disturbing, so those of you who don't like the gory details, the rest of this podcast probably is not going to be for you. I know usually podcasts try and skip these specific details, but with this case, they really need to be discussed because it's the only true facts that we have and the only way that we can create a narrative as to what happened to the Gruber family. So we're going to talk about the autopsy reports victim by victim. First, Andreas Gruber. The right half of his face was smashed. His cheekbones were protruding. His flesh seemed to be shredded on most parts of his face. His face was also caked with blood. Katia Gruber, his wife, had the right area of her eye smashed in, seven blows to her head, and um, a few of those blows are actually going to make a triangular shape. So she's going to have a triangular shape within her skull. There are signs of strangulation, and her skull was cracked. Ouch. Yeah. Victoria Gabriel is going to have nine star-shaped wounds to the head. So the fact that there are nine star-shaped wounds is going to mean the fact that there was a lot more than nine blows given to Victoria's head. She has the right side of her face smashed in with a blunt object, a smashed skull, a small round injury of a pointed tool on the upper skull. So it seems like the murderer is going to take the mattock, turn it around, and hit her again. Because there's the pick side of it, and there's the axe side of it. So Katia Gabriel, she's going to be the daughter of Victoria. She she seems to have the most extensive injuries, so it's going to be a little rough, due to the fact that she is seven years old. She has a smashed lower jaw. Her skull was smashed in with several blows. She had a wide, gaping, transverse wound to the throat. And experts say that a wound like this would cause death, but in two to three hours, not immediately. Wow, so she died a very slow death. Very slow death. Um, She had strangulation marks on her neck. A blood smear found on the right side of her nose. Now, this is important because the blood smear is going to either be a blood smear from the perpetrator or it's going to be from her being alive during after the attack that happens on her balls of hair are found cramped in the right hand of the victim and tufts of hair are missing from her scalp so what we're assuming is that she was alive for um, some of the attacks that maybe she had seen or for some of her attack And the distress of it is going to cause her to pull out her own hair. She also has cervical injury due to shock. Now what that is, is it's neurogenic shock is a distributive type of shock resulting in low blood pressure, occasionally with a slowed heart rate. 
It occurs after damage to the central nervous system or a spinal cord injury. And this is going to result in the pooling of blood in the extremities. And that's how it was detected within the autopsy. Now, those are the extent of the injuries and victims within the barn. So now we're going to work our way into the actual house, the living quarters. Maria Baumgarter is going to be found um, covered with one sheet in the chambers of the maid. And she's killed with a crosswise blow to the head. And one of these wounds was four centimeters deep. Wow, so he, whoever, he or she, whoever hit her must have really uh, wanted her dead. <laughs> yeah, very aggressive. Yeah. Josef Gruber, the two-year-old child, is going to have one heavy blow to the face that is going to end his life. It's also noted um, for crime scene purposes that the body was covered with a clothing garment of Victoria's. So I think it was a skirt that covered the baby's body. So he did make some type of, as small as it is, there was some type of concealment that took place, whether it was the hay in the barn, the sheet, or the clothing within the house. So there was some type of concealment. And the top of the child's bassinet was destroyed as well. So that's why police did assume that the murder took place while the child was in the bassinet, that the blow came down, um, destroyed the bassinet, and then hit the child. Right. So there's other facts that are important to know about the victim's crime scene. Victoria and her daughter are the only two victims known to have strangulation marks. Victoria and her daughter were in day clothes while the rest of the victims were in their night clothes. Um, it is clear that the murderer knew how to use the Matic well. So this is someone who's very familiar with this weapon. The murderer stayed in the house for days after the murder took place. So bizarre. That is really weird. Yeah. I and mean, you kill all these people. You have bodies everywhere. And you just live casually in a house. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's definitely going to um, talk to the psychological aspect of this case and kind of where the murderer was at. Now, we know that he stayed in the house for days after the murders took place because the animals were well cared for. The meals were prepared. Now, this is obviously other than the meals that these idiots ate during the crime scene (laughs) investigation, but other meals were had prior to the trampling of the crime scene. Smoke was seen coming from the house, um, the burners, the chimney, and a man was also seen outside the house after the murders. And this is something that wasn't really made public until around 2007 um, because there was another investigation that took place. We'll get into what happened in 2007. The real official transcripts of what I'm about to read now were lost in 1944, so it's hard to really back this up or support it, but this is something that was officially released to the public to be known as fact. Um, At first, a man was returning farm equipment, and he knocked on the door, but there was no answer. He saw smoke coming from the chimney, so he left the equipment outside the tool shed and left. Now, that's just someone who borrowed farm equipment from Andreas. But additionally, now, when evidence is corroborated, that really is when you can understand it as being fact. 
On April 4th, 1922, Carpenter Michael Pollock, I hope I said his name right, was passing by the Hinterkaifeck farm on Saturday night, the 1st of April, and saw smoke and light coming from the oven, and a rather large man came from the oven and the back of the house, and he shone a flashlight in the face of Michael. He then disappeared into the oven without saying a word. So someone was basically putting wood into the oven so there was smoke coming out of the chimney and the man came out of that area of the house, saw him, shone a flashlight in his face, and then went back inside. Odd. Very odd. And he was um, described by Michael as being a large man. And this would, they did say that Andreas was a large man, but they also, um, it said the next man who was closest, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, he wasn't a large man by any accounts. So all files regarding the testimony of Pollock are going to be lost in 1944. So it's really hard to read directly into what was said, but we do know that that was recorded. It is also important to know that the heads of the victims were sent to Munich for further testing and analyzation. However, they were lost during the chaos of World War II. How fortunate for the heads. I know. (laughs) Way to go, government. Uh, The bodies of the victims are buried next to a memorial on the property on the farm without their heads, which is really sad. This is just an aside. I know I said it in the beginning when we talked about the discovery of the bodies, but just keep in mind, remember that a cow did run out of the barn when the search party initially finds the bodies. Now, this could be the way that the family was systematically brought into the barn and killed. If they think there's a loose animal out there and they're trying to rope the animal back in, but then when they get to the barn, they're going to meet their fate. They do, um, police do say that if one person is responsible for this, that it would have to be a systematic killing. Okay, so now that we've been through the facts of how the bodies were found, what the fam- what was going on with the family, let's talk about some of the theories. You ready? This is your favorite part. This is my favorite part. So the most popular theories about what happened the day, night of the murders is as follows. A killer must have been in the barn due to the fact that Victoria and young Katzia had their day clothes on. Something must have lured them into the barn. We don't know what, but something. This could have either been because there were chores to do or because there was a loose farm animal. But in fact, there had been reportings in the surrounding areas that people were lured out of their homes by animals that were set free while criminals would rob the houses of the farmers. Now, this could allude to is the fact that people were pretty desperate during this time. So there is going to be a lot of robberies that are going to take place. Um, So the one issue that I have with the facts of the systematic killings is when we talk about the murders of... Victoria and Katia Gabriel, those are the two most brutal murders that took place. So how did the family not hear those murders happening? Well, I was thinking, I mean, if they were, those are the only two strangled, correct? Yes. So, I mean, if those are the two, only two victims that were strang, uh, you know, strangulated, then, I mean, they really couldn't call out for any help if they were strangulated, right? And, I mean, the, the devastating blows to both of them could have been done after they were 
Uh, maybe they lost consciousness due to the strangulation, and that's why they were able to do, you know, no one heard anything at all. I don't know. Maybe. But when we say where the barn is in proximity to the house, I mean, it's hard to not even hear those whacks. Someone had to have cried out. I mean, both victims couldn't have been strangled at the same time. That's true. But then, I mean, you also have to consider the fact that they are in the barn where there are animals. You know, animals move. They make noises. It That's could true. cover up, you know, any sort of sound that, you know, of, of the killing, you know. Right. Or, I mean, because Victoria and her daughter are in their day clothes, possibly the murders took place while the other members of the family weren't even there. It's possible. For some reason, Andreas and his wife went out to the barn one by one throughout the evening or night. Most likely to check on one another. That's what I'm assuming because if people aren't coming back, then there has to be a problem. After the oldest members of the family were killed, the killer must have then went into the house and killed Maria, the maid, and then Yosef, the family's two-year-old son. It's a pure, it's, it is apparent that they were killed last because the two were sleeping. They were actually in their bed chambers. So there seems to be a progression throughout the day into the night. So Victoria and her daughter were lured out to the barn. They were murdered. And then Andreas is going to come out. And then Cassia is going to go. And then after the, the main threats are taken down, he then is going to go into the house and take down the maid and the son. Right, which kind of seems to me like he kind of knew the layout of the property. Oh, yeah. 100%. And he knew how to use the weapon. Right. Um, and, I mean, he knew who was in the house. I mean, because think about it. If you're going to kill a bunch of these people, I mean, you're going to have to do some sort of stakeout to see who's exactly there. I mean, you need to know who's in the house, you know, you know how you're going to... What their plan- routine is. Right, what their routine is. I mean, th- this is definitely like some old school stalker shit, you know? Right, and that's going to allude to the fact that it could be the guy from the woods... Or it could be Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Could be. People, somebody who knows the routine of the family is going to be the person who Absolutely. does this. Absolutely. And who better than the neighbor that lives right over there. Right. Next to them. Now, this crime is going to shake Germany to its core. Um, this is at a time when the country and the people are just desperate to rebuild their lives. And the fact that this could happen to a wealthy family in the peacefulness of the forest was unthinkable. It is very clear that the people of Germany and now all around the world want this case solved. It's really intriguing. I think it's just the fact that an entire, whenever an entire family is murdered, that takes so much planning and calculation and anger that it people get obsessed with it because of the psychological aspect. Like what that person had to have been going through mentally to commit these crimes is fascinating. And also the fact that it's never been solved. So a lot of times Germany is going to open reinvestigations into this crime. And the most recent occurrence of this is going to be in 2007 when students from a police academy in Germany were asked to solve the crime as a training exercise. Now I have to give my hats off to them because most of the evidence most of the interviews, everything that I found is really from their, they basically accumulated every primary source that has to do with this case, and it was given to the public. And this was the first time that all this evidence was released to the public, and they did an amazing job getting everything together, 
And that's where most of, if not all, of the stuff is going to come from that I use. So that was amazing. And also shout out to Google Translate for translating it into English. (laughs) (laughs) So although they state that the crime was poorly investigated, this is going to be what they said went downtown. The crime was extremely poorly investigated and that they have one final conclusion. The crime was committed by someone who knew how to run a farm. He was familiar with livestock. A person that was comfortable enough to stay at the farm after the murders in the company of the family dog. The murderer was also strong enough to use the mattock on six victims. The crime was not committed for financial reasons because a lot of jewelry and clothes and money was found inside the house. The motivation they're going to say was purely personal. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. I also want to add that the chief commissioner of the Department of Operational Case Analysis for Killing and Sexual Offenses, Klaus Waist, is um, he basically is a pro- what we would consider a profiler for the FBI. He is going to get together with his esteemed colleagues and conclude that everything points to personal motives. There must have been tensions in the immediate environment or the emotional conflict between perpetrators and victims. So something's going on with the victims that's going to create this because there's there's an aggression there. Oh yeah, I mean even on the uh, the nanny, I mean the nanny was I mean to my opinion was probably the most personal you know killing out of all of them because it was four centimeters. I mean it was deep. four centimeters deep. I mean that's you know you really are like you know pulling your arms back and going as fast as you can, as strong as you know as, as hard as you can to really make sure that they're not coming back. Right. Now with everything we know about the victims, let's get into uh, people's favorite theories and what who they think did it and what went down. So the, the fan favorite, really, is Loren Schlittenbauer. Everyone's going to say Schlittenbauer did this. Um, let's talk about some of the things and why people say this. So he's got motive because there's bad blood between Victoria and Andreas. He has to pay maintenance for Joseph, who may not even be his son. Possibly other neighbor neighborly disputes. We don't know. There may be some other things that went down between the two men. You know, borrowing of equipment, things like that. His reaction at finding the bodies, people are going to say he really knew the layout of the house quite well and that he was unaffected by seeing the dead bodies. He's a farmer. He lives close. He could have possibly gone back and forth from his house to, to the Gruber's house. His alibi is only that he was working on his own farm, which is right next to the property. And he involved himself deeply into the murder investigation. Especially by tampering with it as well. Moving bodies, looking for, you know, Yosef, whatever, you know. I mean, I he did a lot to be involved. Yeah, he did. And I think that him involving himself in the murder investigation so deeply is something that makes him look the most innocent to me i mean to me him knowing the layout of the farm is just normal because he's the neighbor he's the only guy within miles so of course he's going to have been in the gruber's farm especially when he was having relationship with victoria right so i don't think him knowing the layout makes him look guilty i don't think him having kind of a non-reaction to the bodies makes him guilty 
I think it's more of the fact that he really is going to throw himself into this investigation. Right. I mean, I the only thing with Schlittenbauer is, you know, I mean, we, we, we can also look at it from a different perspective. So, like, you know, I was thinking about, you know, well, what if he's just like some, you know, a religious fanatic um, who just really, you know, doesn't like the whole incest thing. Well, who does, right? But, I mean, he, re, he you know, kind of reported them twice. You know, he was very adamant about that. And it's very possible that, you know, he was just, you know, a religious, you know, um, fanatic. And maybe he was just like, I want to kill all of them because they're, you know, all, all these children are born of incest. Um, you know, you have, you know, fathers, you know, lying with their daughters and, you know, a wife that just isn't doing anything about it. So it's very possible that that gave him the motive and it became personal for him. That's true. I mean, you could say that, that maybe there's some other motive that Schlittenbauer's so angry. But I think the two victims that got it the worst, not saying that everybody didn't get it worse because they were all murdered, but the most aggressive attacks is going to be on Victoria and her daughter. I would think if Schlittenbauer is going to commit this crime, that the most violent attack would be on Andreas and Victoria. And maybe even uh, Katia Gruber because she didn't do anything. But I think it's bizarre that the attack was on the daughter. Like, if it was Schlittenbauer, I think he would have focused most of his rage at Andreas. I understand what you're saying. And I think my, 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 final, my final argument as to... And by the way, I don't think... I don't know 100% if Schlittenbauer did it. I mean, there's other things that I think that, you know, other people that it could be. But, I mean, the only thing that makes me look at uh, Schlittenbauer a little differently is also that, you know, they said that whatever, the, the weapon that was used, it went it went through the bassinet and hit him. You know, so maybe it's possible, that, you know, that he said to himself, well, if this is my child, I don't want to look directly at him. You don't want to have to see that. So it's possible that he just kind of, you know, swung blindly into the bassinet it it you know completely collapsed and it killed him and he knew that he hit something and that was it and he walked away from it that's true i don't know yeah and maybe his attack against katia gabriel was so brutal because she was most likely born from an incestuous relationship because when we do the math it there's no way that carl gabriel could be the father of right also i mean when you strangle someone, I mean, that's really fucking personal. Yeah. Like, you're, you're up in their face, and it's very possible that maybe they he wanted them to see him and, you know, that he's performing these strangulations on the two of them. And, you know, I know it's kind of like, okay, well, how the hell could you strangle two people? Well, I mean, one's a child, you know, and maybe the child's scared shitless. I mean, what child wouldn't be? Right. It's possible that she, uh, the, the mother was the first victim there, and uh, the child watched. It's possible. Right. Okay, so that's our Lorenz Schlittenbauer. The next um, theory that people have is that Andreas Gruber's brothers are going to be the one that commit the murder. Um, Andreas' sister on her deathbed stated that her husband and her other brother committed the murders because they were jealous of the wealth of Andreas. I just don't know. I think it's been proven that the crimes weren't financial because no money was taken and then the farm was left abandoned. Right. I mean, if they really wanted a piece of it, they would just kill his ass and just take everything that was, you know, um, left behind. Right. You know, they had go- you had gold coins. You had the marks. I mean, you had uh, clothes. You had, you know, uh, jewelry. I mean, and you had the property, you know, the house and the farm. I, I just don't think that that's... That just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me either. 
Moving on. Okay, the next one I think is crazy interesting, and um, it's a supernatural aspect. So it's the idea that, you know, maybe from what the first maid said with the disembodied voices and the footsteps in the attic and Andreas saying that he heard the footsteps as well, um, that maybe it was a supernatural event that took place. So what you're trying to say to me is that, <laughs> uh, you know, it's more like uh, ghosts like in The Shining and they, it makes someone flip out and kill everyone? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think that would be super crazy plot twist but i don't think that we can blame ghosts for this i one. don't think so either yeah as much as we love our supernatural stories no if, I, don't I, I will say this though if you did tell if you told me that one of the family members especially let's say the the, the grandfather was alive and the rest of the family was dead and you know maybe uh there was another motive like there was something else outside source like a ghost that made him commit it then yeah but the whole family died yeah, he so didn't... I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I think just people love the supernatural. And yeah. I mean, I like the supernatural, but in this case, I don't see it. Yeah, I don't think this was a DeFeo no. murder no case way. kind no. of thing. No, I don't think so either. Nope. Okay, so another interesting theory is the theory of Carl Gabriel. Which is my favorite. And I think that this is where I, I, I believe that, if anything, this could be very, it's very possible. Um, People do tend to overlook it a lot. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the story, the thing with Carl Gabriel is he, of course, is the ex-husband. Well, not ex-husband. He's the husband of Victoria Gabriel, but he was declared killed in action during World War I, but no body was supposedly ever found. Possibly, um, people say that he may have made his way back home after the war's end. And, okay, so, so the war is going to end 1917, so this is five years after the war. Maybe a big possibility. It's a possibility. I mean, listen, you're in war, you get displaced. You know, maybe he got, you know, maybe he got injured in combat. And prisoner he was sent, of war. Or prisoner of war. You know, I mean, anything's possible. I mean, th- those years could be accounted for if he was indeed alive. Okay, so let's pretend that we are Carl Gabriel. We survived World War One. We are prisoners of war. From the Russians. They're pretty freaking awful. So we had a bad time. And we're going to make our way back to Hinter Kfec Farm. And I'm going to see my wife Victoria. And she has two children. One of which would have been born right after I left. Doesn't really make sense. Means the child can't be mine. Also means that my wife was cheating on me. Oh yeah. During our marriage. Then... There's a two-year-old son, Yosef. And where the hell did you come from? Where the hell did this kid come from? Right. Especially because she's not remarried. And if he was stalker guy at the line of the forest, maybe he might have also seen and noticed that she was involved um, in a sexual relationship with two men, Schlittenbauer and right. Gruber. Which would, which would explain how the crime is very personal. You know, I mean, that's very personal. You know, I mean, yeah. you know... You see that shit, you know, you kind of want to go eat, you know, you want to kill people, you know? (laughs) Right. I mean, Um, he wasn't really emotionally tied to Victoria. He did want the property, but it does seem like if she's involved in relationships with other men, that maybe this property may not be his any longer. Right. 
and then he just wants to take everyone out. Now, I think for for me, I, I thought about a few things, and you know, I come up, I came up with this. You know, so you have a guy that is coming back from war, right? This is also during the winter time, I, I, I presume, right? Well, March, the end of March, April. Okay. Well, put it this way, it's right? It's still cold. In it's Germany. still pretty cold, and um, you know, you're in Germany, so I mean, this is a dude that was in the trenches. He dealt with, I mean, so many different situations, weather, people. You know, bullets flying at you, gas, nerve gas, all these things that are happening, you know, whatever, right? Okay, well, if this guy comes back, I mean, this is a man that could possibly live up in your attic. <laughs> um, he Well, no matter what, even if whatever he went through during war, depending on where he was stationed, because it seems like if he was stationed in France, he may, not ha- he may have had to go through trench warfare, but um, no matter what, if he's returning, he survived five years afterwards. Right. So he definitely doesn't care if he has to live in an attic. Right. I mean, this dude's a survivalist at this point. I mean, like... I just don't think he has the aggression towards the family. I don't know. Well, I mean... What I do think could be a possibility is what if he was the man in the cemetery? And he came back and he's going to approach Victoria and she's going to shrug him off. That would cause the aggression. Yeah, if I mean, he's unknown cemetery man, I don't think he's unknown cemetery man. I mean, unless the dude is defigured from the war. I <laughs> need to see a picture of Victoria because she sounds like everybody wants to be with her. I mean, I don't know. I mean, she must be some sort of prize, like I said. Yeah. You know, like you know. So I mean, a lot of people do say that the theory of Carl Gabriel is super interesting. Could be something that took place. It would really be a massive plot twist. But it's also important to go over this with you guys. So sorry to burst the bubble of your favorite theory. Oh man. But his death was confirmed. The police were also suspicious of the death of Carl Gabriel. So they pressed the Central Proof of War Losses and Warriors Bureau. That's a really cool name for a bureau. Cool. I like to work there. And they received confirmation that Carl Gabriel, 6th Company of the 13th Bavarian Reserve Infantry, was killed in action by a mine shot on December 12, 1922. His body was identified by two men that he had went to grade school and secondary school with, and that they also dug his grave. Okay. Well, that did burst my bubble, but I could already come up with something else from that. Go for it. Okay. So, this dude already, we have, you know, confirmation that he kind of, you know, was talking about, you know, um, his wife and his family and the farm and what they had, you know, so like you said before at the beginning, I mean, this was a, a, a you know, semi-wealthy family for the time. So, I mean, this guy's, ba- you know, going off at the mouth at the, in the bars and even in war, you know, you talk about it. And I think, uh, what if the people that, you know, his friends that he went to school with, they know where the farm is, they know that, you know, who's there. Or it's, just any drinking buddy or soldier. Absolutely. So it's possible that, you know, word spreads fast. Gossip spread fast. You know, come on, guys. You know. Locker room talk. You know? Things spread. <laughs> Locker room talk. Locker room talk. <laughs> it's true. You know? You know? So, you, you, you know, you hear shit. Maybe one of the soldiers or friends acted on, you know, the possibility. You know, I the think, possibility. You know, I think I don't know. that something that pushes that a little bit forward is the fact that Everyone in Germany was going through such bad economic times. Maybe you have a soldier who was told about this farm um, and it was a wealthy family 
and he's down on his luck after the war, and that's where he's going to go. I mean, maybe. It's possible. You never know. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. You know, word spreads fast. Okay, so that's an interesting theory. It's very possible. Maybe one of his I'm, friends or it's soldiers. Really, kinda, I know you don't want to give up on this. I don't. The Carl Gabriel theory. <laughs> I, I, I think that, I mean, it's possible that he could have died, but I just, I don't know. I just like it a lot. I don't know. Let's get into my favorite theory. Okay, here we go. Let's do it. All right. So, this theory is that there's a random... Now, I think we just like these theories because they're more interesting than just that the fact that the neighbor did it, and that's probably what it is. But a random stalker or killer is the person that is going to commit these murders stranger style. Like, that's going to happen, just commit the murders because so, they want to commit the murders. So you're saying it's just uh, the it's our modern, modern day uh, stalker. Yeah, right. basically. So, the idea that there was either a person living on the property of the farm or stalking the family and planned on killing them. So, this theory can go in two separate directions. This is someone who was living on the farm and decided to kill them. Or this is someone who was stalking them and decided to kill them. So, now we're going to like branch off into two separate theories. So, this is the direction of someone living in the house. Now, we in America experienced an extreme economic downturn in 2008 with our recession. And during this time, it was stated that there were several housing, um, there were several housing developments that people had to leave their homes. They were evicted from their homes. They had to give them up. They couldn't pay the mortgages anymore. So we have abandoned properties. And people, homeless people, are going to move into these abandoned properties. But when families start buying these homes again, there's now a homeless person living in your attic. Yeah, you got squatters. <laughs> yeah. and you got they squatters are, everywhere. There's so many cases of that happening during the economic downturn of 2008. Now, our economic downturn is nothing compared to the crisis that happened in Germany after World War One. So, what's to say that someone who was down on their luck didn't notice this massive property and decide to squat there? It's possible. The only thing that the only the only thing that I don't that makes me think that that's not the case is just because you said previous that previously that the only person that would go out for supplies was the grandfather, which was you know he was the only one. He kept the rest of the family kind of secluded from the town. So, in order for a squatter to get in there. I mean, the whole family would have had to, you know, be gone unless. Well, that's the footsteps in the snow. That's well, the footsteps right. in the attic. But, but then, I know could, what you're saying. But it totally could be though, in a way. Well, what if they're doing work on the farm? Or what if they all go to church? Right. So, so you're just proving yourself wrong. I am proving myself wrong. <laughs> but like I said, I you like the other know. theory. I mean, but it, this is possible. It could happen, and then someone who's doing that, mm, probably not all there upstairs. So maybe they do commit the crimes they lived in the house after the crimes happened i mean no normal person would do oh, no normal person would kill six people and then live and around then live them. in it yeah not even try to put the bodies in a different place live around them yeah your mindset i mean your headspace has to be really You're fucked, fucked up. up yeah yeah okay so now let's go stalker direction okay so stalker direction on some blogs that i read about the henter k murders people are going to kind of compare these murders to the murders of the otero family 
Now, the Otero family was murdered by the BTK killer, Vine Torture Kill. And he didn't know that the father of the Otero family was home at the time, so he does murder a family. It was very botched. It was very, like, all messed up because he didn't plan it well. But the similarities in the case are that the the mother and the daughter were strangled and that the killer got some type of sexual gratification from the strangulation and then that he didn't now there was no rape that happened to the Otero family but there's also no rape that happened to the Gruber family but maybe the sexual gratification took place after the murders and that this crazy stalker maniac psychopath is going to kill the family and then get his sexual gratification Jeez. if you know what i'm saying right so you're saying he's just whacking off everywhere all over the uh, house yes okay yes yeah. much like in the otero case where um there was evidence of that taking place but we wouldn't find it at the farm because everyone's walking all over the place so and and you don't even know what to look for that's true and now all that evidence is gone because people are moving around. So maybe this was a random killing. I mean, we're talking about people that are in these crazy, desperate situations. And you don't know how someone will snap at the fact that their whole life was taken away. And that now they went from being a wealthy person to having nothing. And now they're living in the woods. And you, you don't know how people are going to react to these economic downturn situations and the flip side like the other the other side of this is a soldier as well a soldier you know now we know about ptsd this could have some sort of connection with ptsd they went through the war maybe they survived they had a really shit time there and now they're all fucked up in the head that could also be it as well right and we're never going to know what took place we're never going to know what happened because the evidence was so uh poorly gathered from the crime scene yep so although my favorite theory now, not to say, like, favorite theory. I don't want you guys to think I'm fucked up and that. I think that this is something normal that took place. But the theory that I think gets overlooked because people think it never happens, but the sad truth is that it does, is that maybe this was just a random killing. Possible. It's very possible. Because Loren Schlittenbauer, it's what everyone says he did it, there was no evidence to take him in. And he never cracked, and nobody else ever said they thought it was him. And I know he's a popular person that people say, oh, they they say Lorenz Schlittenbauer did it, but I just, you never know. Is that, and you're still sticking with your Carl Gabriel? I want to stick with my Carl Gabriel or a friend or soldier related, you know, um, you know, a social relationship, you know, between him and Carl. You know, it has to be someone in that soldier or Carl himself, something like, something in that, you know, Aspect. Aspect, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's our podcast on the Hinter KFEC murders. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, this is our first go around, so please be nice, but please give us feedback. Yes. If you want to um, talk to us on Twitter, we're at True Couple, True Crime Couple. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, we're new to this. And um, please, please go on iTunes and give us reviews. Please give us five stars. Be nice. Be kind. Don't ruin our day. And we want our, and we want your comments. So, please. And we want to know what you think. All right? Thank you so much. Bye, guys. <laughs>